podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Today's show is inspired by you guys for writing to us. We're going to tropicalmba.com slash voicemail for reaching out to us on Twitter. Your questions get us thinking, and when we get thinking, we get talking, and then everybody's in trouble. So today we are going to be addressing a broad range of topics, including but not limited to how much time is it really going to take you to get that new business off the ground? How much hustle do you need to have? Locations to live in if you're just starting out, and then maybe do those locations change as your business matures? We are going to talk about the dilemmas of sustainability or being green and much more. So let's roll it. Welcome to my humble abode, boss man. Pretty small in here. (laughs) You know, one thing I was thinking, though, from a location-independent productivity perspective is we got on a plane. We used our miles to fly business class, which is, you know, at one point I thought this was a productive thing, and now I just know that it's just a nice thing. I went back and saw you in your seat. You just watch rom-coms the whole time, (laughs) like 10 hours straight of rom-coms. Yeah. And you didn't eat on the plane because yeah. you decided this is like your fasting time. For me, it's like my pig out time. There's two things that I started doing this year a little bit more is one is just fasting here and there just to, I don't know, I've just been reading about it online, like giving your body a chance to just rest and you don't have to eat and you actually have a lot more time to figure out different things to do with your day. The other thing is I've been trying to sleep more, just like straight up, like giving myself more time to sleep. Speaking of productivity. I showed up here to Barcelona. We rented some apartments in the same building. I wrote about it online a few years ago. I travel with a 24-inch monitor that goes face down in the bottom of my luggage. And I kind of went into the apartment, set up everything. And I'm, I have a full desk with a monitor sitting there. Like I'm on a whole new continent. All the team calls are still the same. It's just remarkable to me. It's still remarkable to me, this lifestyle. The fact that it wasn't even a blip that we went from the middle of America to like the Spanish coast. It's just so incredibly cool. That's why we do this podcast talking about having that kind of uh, flexibility in your business. What we're going to do today is Q&A podcast, questions from the listeners. We appreciate them always. We read all of them. Ian, we're going to go through some interesting questions today. I'm going to pose them to you. See what you think about them, and hopefully we will disagree more than once. Probably so. Ian, this is really exciting for me that a professor is using this podcast in his class. Shout out, Professor Tyler. Professor Tyler is putting the TMBA on the curriculum. We started an email chain. This is interesting to me. Very proud about like seeing this happen. It's also happened at University of Texas. It makes me proud because... You know, we want to be doers in this space. That's what we are. We're executors. We are entrepreneurs. But I have a very big soft spot in my heart for the intellectual world, the people who think about like, what does it mean 
that so many people around the world are building these sorts of businesses. Like I'm equally attracted to that side of things. And so I asked Tyler, what sort of questions do your students have in the class when they hear this stuff? We would just want to pose some of them on the show, get some listener feedback, and maybe we can continue to flesh out this conversation as we go along. So one of the things Tyler mentioned is that his students are very mindful about sustainability in business. How can entrepreneurs find supply chain partners that meet certain sustainability criteria, develop products that utilize more sustainable materials, think about and account for the potential unintended environmental or societal consequences of their product services, and how to create a location-independent business that acts as a positive force for good. This is one of these like old man moments for me. Like, I think you really have to take these types of questions seriously because this is what the quote kids are thinking about these days. And like, this is what the younger generation like wants to solve, you know, and this is what they will solve. This is what's going to be important to them. And I think this is how the world changes. You know, it's like one generation goes through and they create all these corporations and there's all this corporate greed. And then the next generation says like, you know what, we're not going to do it that way. And I do think, Dan, like kind of on a broader level, it will be interesting to see. I have a, I have a theory. It's not going to come to fruition probably for 30 or 40 years, but will corporations become villainized? I mean, I think they're already starting to become a little bit villainized, but like how far will that go? Will it go down to like the small business entrepreneur? I'm not really sure, but it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So to answer the question, you know, in terms of like finding partners that have like sustainability baked into their business as well, like if you're looking for a manufacturing partner, things like that. One of the things I think to consider in terms of that, Dan, is like a lot of these quote certifications are basically made up by lobbyists. They're like created under the guise of doing something good. And I think sometimes they do do good things, but a lot of times they're like built to keep competitors out. The first question you got to ask yourself is like, who sets the standard for what's sustainable? And like, maybe you should set the standard for what's sustainable. Maybe you should decide like what's acceptable in your manufacturing process. So I think that's the first thing is like, don't default to like some standard sustainability program, right? Like create your own, figure out what works for you and what you think is good for the environment if that's what you're worried about. I'm loving that the students are thinking this way because this is one of the things I most love about being an entrepreneur is that you have a big megaphone. That's what your business is. It's a platform. I mean, you are a benevolent dictator as an entrepreneur. You create a little fiefdom, you write all the rules, and you have a responsibility when you're in that situation to make the world a better place, to build a business in an image of how you think people ought to interact with other people and how they should interact with the environment as well. I'm so happy that students are thinking quite this way. The concern I have is also related to your comments, which is, don't fall into the trap of consuming sustainability products and then correlating that with you having done something sustainable or for the environment. Entrepreneurs every day are put in really tough positions like this. I'll give you an example of one. Let's say you're selling a widget that you produce in China. You're quite happy with the way the factory is. It's injection molded plastic. You're cool with that. So that's two bucks. And then you got a box that you got to put it in. And one box is like recycled, let's say. 
and it's like two dollars and then the unrecycled box that was like they chopped down a tree to make that box or whatever is one dollar and you're selling the widget for six dollars if you find yourself in that situation as an entrepreneur it's really hard to choose the recycled box it really is because okay there's this supposedly recycled box that what are you going to fly to china and, and burn some jet fuel to figure that out and is that going to affect your ability to put food on somebody else's table? Yes, it is going to affect your ability. And in other words, like you're going to be put in like morally significant situations all the time as an entrepreneur. If sustainability is of real interest to you, I really encourage you to get into that business itself, like make those decisions easier for entrepreneurs. And part of sustainability might be that you can't sell your widget for six dollars maybe it needs to be nine dollars so you can afford that box well, and and what then, a lot of companies are doing is they're getting their customers on board with the aim and the mission so if this is something you believe in again that's coming back to like your own private fiefdom like maybe you can find your tribe out there and, and they believe in it too one of the things dan i'm like a little bit more surprised about actually i'm looking at this television here like the true cost of a television if it was made quote sustainably is like much higher than than you pay in the store, you know? But a lot of people, I think they're still not like willing to actually pay what the real price of sustainability is. I got my first taste of this when I went into a factory. I saw people welding, like holding cardboard over their face, mm-hmm. basically like without proper welding helmets. And like that was one of those moments where I had to ask myself like, am I going to buy everybody here helmets? If I buy everybody here welding helmets, are they actually going to use them? Or is like the boss going to laugh at me? Should I like move factories? Like I wasn't really in a position to like have that conversation and speak Chinese or whatever. These situations they do come up all the time, and I think it's cool to be living in a world right now where we can actually afford to quote make the right decision about these things, whatever that means for you. The other question I think would require a full episode to answer, Ian, but I want to pose it in order to elicit the feedback of the audience because I think this is really fascinating. Again, Tyler writes on behalf of his students, it would be instructive to hear an episode, preferably real-life case studies from a diverse group of folks, about leveraging currency differences at the different stages of being a location-independent entrepreneur. For example, hearing from folks that have lived off of $500 a month in one place at the beginning phase of their business, and then gradually moved around to incrementally higher cost of living location as their cash flow increased accordingly. In short, how different locations mapped onto the thousand-day principal staircase for different people. The staircase idea of sort of stepping your way up, you know, like get the first step in the staircase and start working your way through the thousand days that it's going to take you to like sort of, you know, make your living on your own terms. My first thought was, there is this staircase happening. And one of the themes I'm seeing is that people step down to the bottom staircase. And then they step their way back home. You decide like, I'm going to go somewhere where everybody's like me. I'm going to get embedded in a crowd of people in a cheap place. And it's going to be vibrant and entrepreneurial. And I'm going to spend 1500 bucks a month living there. And I'm going to meet some people that are going to start to go on this journey together. And as I get a little scratch in year two or three, I might start visiting Europe. Maybe I'll hang out in Berlin. You know, maybe Ho Chi Minh City was good, but it's, it's kind of hot and stressful. People come and go, let's go to Berlin. There's a lot of entrepreneurs there. It's cheap. 
And then, you know, the Berlin thing's cool. You get your residency, you know, whatever, this, that, and the other thing. And then the business starts to pick up steam past that thousand days. And now maybe you're on year six or seven and things are rolling and you're thinking, you know, it'd be nice to uh, go back and get a house, maybe start a family. I'm a player now in my home city, but I did it on my terms. And part of being able to do it on my own terms required me to step back. Had I had to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, and continue to live at a San Diego level, say, it would have put a lot more risk involved in the entrepreneurial journey. These less expensive cities are, are a great way to find yourself ahead, you know? And I think the same is true, Dan, for like your first employees that you hire, your first contractors that you hire. It's been true in our business. We've looked to some of these places to hire people that are probably overqualified, but they live in a place that's cheaper. And so therefore, you know, they get paid less than somebody that lives in California or New York. So the same thing I think kind of happens when when you hire too, is like you start at these lower level cities in terms of income, and then you kind of stair-step your way up. I want to say this though about the stair-step approach. And again, there's like a lot of cheap living, I think, in this episode. If you can figure out a way to continue to live cheaply, I think that's like one of the best things that you can do for your business. This is an important theme in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Yeah. The rich dad lived in a very modest home and like ran part of his business out of it. And this idea that on the surface, it's cool, travel, exotic locations, weird communities of entrepreneurs in strange cities that I haven't can't pronounce. But at the core, it's about cash flow. It's like a key business principle. A few days ago, I was speaking with a very wealthy, very successful entrepreneur telling me a story about bootstrapping a new business. And it was like a consulting gig for a few thousand dollars a month that enabled him to make like a very hard decision about bootstrapping a new risky company. You know, and it's like you think a few thousand bucks a month made all the difference for someone that at that level. And it was like, yeah, because it's a cash flow thing, right? And if you're living in a situation where you're having to pull in like five to ten thousand dollars a month, like just to meet your nut. And the amount of work that that takes the average person that doesn't have a leverage situation. I mean, again, we're looking for leverage. The further you want to get away from like the sort of average wealth of people, you know, the more leverage you're going to need. What I'm saying is, it's like not about the absolutes. It's actually about the cash flow and like the profit margin and the leverage. Here's the problem, though as it relates to the cash flow situation and the leverage, Dan, is that most people cannot bear the thought of living poorly deep into their 20s because most of their peers don't live that way, especially in America. They've got leases on cars that make them look like they have more money. They own a down payment on a house that makes them look like they have a lot more money, you know, and they're stuck in a job. And like, you will look nothing like these people and these people will not understand you. And eventually these people will not probably be your friend anymore. I actually bumped into a, somebody I went to high school with a few months ago, and I literally saw his head explode when he saw me driving a minivan. And I just thought to myself, like, mm, you know what's living rich? Living rich is like doing whatever the heck you want to do and having a company that allows you to express the sorts of things you desire. And we're like, I want to travel and I want to drive around in a van because it could put my cool stuff and my friends in the back of it. Like, I don't care what you think about it, man. Like, this is the sort of programming, right? This is the kind of reprogramming, I think, as an American that you have to do in order to not get stuck in what I call the middle. 
move to Chiang Mai or like move to New York City. Like yeah. don't move somewhere in the middle. Exactly. We've talked about this a couple of <laughs> times, which is like, would you rather be poor and own all your time, you know, relatively quote poor or have a job, make decent money, but own none of your time? I'd pick selling cars on Craigslist and making two or $3,000 a month living in an apartment, doing whatever I want when I wake up any day, any lifetime. I wrote a couple pieces about this in the blog over the years. One's called the retirement hypothetical with an image of me and you in a little canoe together. But this story of someone willing to live cheaply and not expecting much of the cash flows they were tinkering with, like I just expected, quote, a few thousand dollars a month. I'm betting on that person every time over the big talking, big spending, watch wearing, deal cutter, because this person might figure out something true about what the world wants because they've got the time and the energy to experiment. And I think if I'm listening to this, Dan, right now, I'm thinking like, these guys aren't dreaming very big, you know? I'm a young person. I've got all the opportunity in the world. I think that that's exactly right. You know, if you're in a position where you're in college, you're fortunate enough to get that kind of education you're getting out, you're thinking about being an entrepreneur. I think what I'm suggesting here is just like continue to live cheaply as long as you possibly can. Don't buy into the system. Figure out what you want for yourself. Figure out what sustainable living is for you, sustainable company is for you. To be able to write your own script is going to take a lot of energy and effort and you're not going to look like anybody else doing it. Next time like someone rocks into your life and gives you like the think big speech, Figure out exactly how they made their money. That's my piece of advice. Often the advice you'll hear from people is the advice that they themselves feel that they need to hear. Often the think big people, they got their money from other places. They need to think big in order to like get out of the unsustainable position they're in. Maybe you need to think small and get something small going with momentum that you own. That's the path that I prefer anyway. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think the think big people, it's the same in the startup world, Dan. This is the reason why we grow bootstrap businesses, because I think that they have less opportunity to reach a billion dollars, but more of an opportunity to create a sustainable income for me, myself, my family, and those around me. All right. Next question coming up. Are there any other corporate refugees out there like me that have made the leap, but feel that they still need to go further? Should I be happy with how far that I got, aka producing income on my own via consulting, covering expenses for a family, etc.? Or should I push on to the nirvana of running a business which makes money without me billing hours? So a lot of people listening to the show make a good living selling their skill set to clients through contracts, through retainers, things like this, billable hours. You know, do you think you need to push through to a higher level of business at that point? A quote, higher level of business. First question, I guess, is whose definition of nirvana are we talking about here? If you're using nirvana in the question, you might feel like you haven't reached the total pinnacle of your potential or maybe just what you want. So I think this is like a very personal question. I will say this, though, Dan. I think that there's plenty of like consultants at a high level that are like happy with the way that they spend their time. And I think actually it can be a problem to like automate yourself out of a process that you actually enjoy. Totally. You know, I see this like developers, designers, anybody that's like susceptible to like managing the process versus doing the process for more money, they end up doing it sometimes and then they're less happy because they're not doing the thing that they loved in the first place. So 
I think if you're in a position where you're trading time for money and you just absolutely love it, like you love sitting down and do it every day, like zero things wrong with that. Zero things. Now, if you feel like there's an opportunity to like only do it when you want to do it or to manage people sometimes and you do it or <laughs> one of these things like, yeah, it's worth running the experiment. And a lot of times you're not going to uh, bury your business because of it. Personally, I don't like having clients. So I guess that's always been like an allergy of mine. And I think clients are interesting because they can bring out the best in you, you know, like they can educate you, direct you, drive you, inspire you, all those things that might be very hard to have on your own. For me, one of the cool things about running a business is you can make this decision right up front. Like you can decide like who's going to make the calls. Like one of the things I love about having a podcast is like, yeah, like we want to make our listeners happy, but also we get to make the call on like what we talk about and how we talk about it and how long the show is and all that's our call. Like I really prefer to be in that situation rather than solving the problems that clients bring to my table. I think it's it's on the individual though. It is on the individual, but you and I did make a conscious decision like over 10 years ago, it was customers over clients. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, products is one of them. You know, creating products instead of creating services is another one. Well, you came to me and said, if we ever want to get rich, we're going to need to have our own products. And I thought that is unassailable logic, my friend. <laughs> It's summertime, but I know you're still working hard because you're listening to this podcast. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, you want to get a leg up on your competition, there might not be any better way to do that than to grow a great team. And now you can do that with not only part-time and full-time jobs at Dynamite Jobs, but we can help you get freelancers to do gigs for you. And we do this all 100% free to get started. Check it out over at dynamitejobs.co. We've built a database of over 5,000 resumes that are targeted at people that understand the sorts of businesses you're running. That's from a list of over 20,000 active, subscribed job seekers and freelancers. Our role is to point the most relevant candidates towards your job. We can even help you out with interviews if you choose. We're pretty flexible. We're not just the next job board or database. We offer flexible hiring solutions to be as hands-off or as hands-on as you need. And our team is so confident that you'll love hiring with us that you can go ahead and get started with your job or gig post for free. So make your summer a winning one. Build that team and we can help you over at dynamitejobs.co. Thanks for checking us out. The next topic we're going to cover in this week's episode is not so much a single question as a topic that keeps on coming up time and time again in emails to the boss man and myself. And also we're highlighting it because it's been the focus of a Twitter storm around someone both Ian and myself respect, and he's been graceful enough to come here on the show in the past. That person is DHH or David Heinemeyer Hansen, creator of the programming language Ruby on Rails and co-founder of Basecamp. Now, DHH has really been weighing in and criticizing the theory popularized, I think it's fair to say, by online celebrities like Gary Vaynerchuk, who say that you have to hustle and work like crazy and work 80-hour work weeks to become successful as an entrepreneur. Isn't this just the Silicon Valley way? They're making a virtue out of it. DHH's view is, no, you don't. And actually, you shouldn't, because not only is it unproductive in the long term, but it's bad for your well-being and relationships. So the boss man and I, 
have been moved to give a few thoughts? This is an interesting question because I think it's come up a lot lately, especially with like DHH, actually. I mean, I can't open my Twitter without seeing him talk about this. I know that they have a new book about it, but he definitely has a perspective on how hard you should be working. It seems like it's not hard at all, but I want to make this distinction because I want to say what I think he's saying. I think in terms of like entrepreneur versus employee, there's a difference. And I think a lot of times he is talking to the employee, not necessarily the entrepreneur. Right. Especially maybe like developers. Sure. Who are in like high pressure situations. And so, I mean, we're speculating quite a bit, but like, you know, DHH is looked up to a great deal by developers who use his programming language. The vast majority of people that are following him probably have jobs as opposed to, you know, the minority like the folks listening to this show who run businesses. The premise of his argument is like, work doesn't need to be crazy. Don't work too hard. Work smart. You know, nobody should be working 15 hour days, not taking off weekends, things like that. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that, especially being here in Europe. Like you can definitely see like the work ethic is different. And I think in America, there's like tons of posturing going on. Like no one is actually working at the office for eight hours. Everybody comes in, acts like they're working, tries to be the first there, the last to leave. It's just, it's actually a a very awful culture, I'd say, of work at a lot of these corporations. And for those of you, maybe, you know, there's a lot of listeners maybe never been to America or haven't been in the corporate culture in America. I got to share a quote that I read on Hacker News the other day that's been stuck with me ever since. Moving across the country for a high-paying job? Great. Moving to be closer to friends? That's a career killer. The reality of the situation, I think, in corporate America is like, I read that and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't have like a single friend who would like turn down the job across the country. Like, they're going. But the question you know, related to that question, I think that's worth asking yourself is what are you optimizing for? So it's like, yeah, of course I'm moving to Chicago, but why? So like going to work every day, making a bunch of money, spending a bunch of money. And at the end of 30 years, not having a bunch of show for it at work, you know, not having a bunch of show for it in your personal life, not having a bunch of show for it in your bank account. So the question, I think getting back to, you know, DHA saying like you shouldn't work hard, I don't know if that's uh, the right question to be asking. I think the real question to be asking is like, what are you optimizing for? And as an entrepreneur, I've met zero people, Dan, a total of zero people that are wealthy in a position of life that they want to be in with a business that they like that didn't have to work hard for it. So I just think this idea that you don't have to work hard to have a business that you actually care about in the life that you want is just not true. And in terms of like, being an employee, I think there's a lot of ways to make a decent living not working hard. I think that that's valid. Well, one of the things that you can see in like quite experienced corporate workers that like have a good job and stuff, and you can see them like consider the entrepreneurial option. And like a younger version of myself always thought these people are crazy for not wanting to, you know, start a business and have like more flexibility and freedom. Like, why would you want, you know, that? trajectory where you got this job and everything the older me like sees the wisdom and their reticence like all that risk that they attach to the idea of starting their own thing and like all those ideas of like the work that they would need to do and like the restarts and all that like they're right 
you know, when I started being an entrepreneur, I didn't have that perspective. I didn't really see the map. I just thought that this was the best option for me. I agree that like DHH's advice, it's good for somebody, but it's definitely not good for somebody that wants to start a business. Rob Walling on his podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, often talks about at the beginning, you're sort of like on this hamster wheel and you're trying to get to a flywheel. And like, I think what most of the entrepreneurs that I know and certainly myself imagine is that someday you'll get to this moment where you own these enormous assets, whether they're, it's real estate, whether it's online properties, whether it's companies that are just churning along, tossing off cash flow, and you just manage the whole thing. At the beginning of that enormous flywheel was, was a hamster wheel that was going crazy. There is a third scenario, Dan, which I think can happen, which is like you start a business, right place, right time. Turns out that like, you know, it's getting pretty hot outside and snow cones are like really flying off the shelves, you know? Just one of those things like, oh, it kind of fell in my lap and then kind of franchised it and this and that. I think that those things happen and maybe that's what happened with Basecamp. But before Basecamp happened, DHH developed from his brain Ruby on Rails, which is a programming language, you know? I don't know how hard he worked at that. Maybe the guy's just a genius. Most people would have to work pretty hard to develop their own programming language. So at some point in time, like, yeah, maybe your third or fourth business, you didn't have to work that hard because you leveraged everything else that you'd known, or maybe you were a genius. I just disagree in general with this idea that you're not going to have to work hard to get the things that you want. Right. I think basically you got to be a Gary V to become a DHH. Here's the other thing, Dan. I don't think there's any reason why you should be ashamed of like becoming something else, like why you should be ashamed of like working less or like taking your foot off the gas a little bit, especially the older that you get, but know your roots, know where you came from. Yeah, now I got a little bit of survivor's bias. In the beginning, I was like working 15 hours a day. Cool. Next question, Ian. Do you think it's harder to make tough decisions about dynamite jobs because we've publicly pinned our reputations to it. <laughs> our reputations. That sounds like a fake laugh. <laughs> what is that worth? Yeah, it was a fake laugh. I was laughing about our reputations. Yeah. I got a couple thoughts on this, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. By the way, can I give you like a little bit more background to this sure. question? Because I've basically heard this question and seen it in my inbox a few times now. And there are many listeners of the show, I suspect, and, and personal friends who think that we're wasting our time with dynamite jobs and it's not a good idea for whatever reason. They make excellent arguments. And so they're asking us out of like sort of kindness, like saying like, hey, just because you guys said you're excited about it, just because you said you want it to be successful, you don't have to hold yourself to that standard. Like, Don't be scared to be embarrassed in front of the podcast audience or whatever if it doesn't work out. That's kind of like the theme behind the question. I'm not embarrassed. I've been failing my whole life. I mean, that's the whole thing here, Dan, is like, yeah, this is one of the projects that we're bringing up on the podcast that may or may not survive. But the truth is, there's been like 10 or 15 of these, and every single one of them pretty much has failed. You were talking to one of our entrepreneurial friends this morning about all of his failures. You know, it's like these things, they, they never make it. And here's the deal. We have a podcast. We're fortunate for that. We're sharing what's going on. It may or may not make it. I think we're privileged to be in that position where we can even be talking about it like this. It's a good thing we don't have a podcast where we're supposedly know what we're talking about. Well, that's what I was going to get to next, which is basically, you know, I was on a podcast. I wasn't actually on a podcast. I recorded a podcast about a year (laughs) ago, and it was from a, a famous internet business guru. 
And basically, like thinking back about it, like when I was getting asked questions, like I didn't have a lot of answers because, you know, in this stuff, there aren't a lot of like hard, fast answers a lot of times. Like, I don't know, like I just tried this, it worked out, I tried this or that. And a lot of times, these shows, those shows, they have all the answers. And because of that, my podcast never aired. And I wasn't really surprised about it because if you're listening to one of those people's podcasts, like you have to have the answers and it has to all fit. And like that's the strategy for them. Anyways, after the microphones turned off, I kind of started to dig in with them about like what other business ventures they were into. And anyways, he kind of divulged to me like he had this business venture and like spent a bunch of money on it and like failed. And I was like, oh, wow, that's great. Why don't you tell that on the podcast? You know? And then I cut off the phone and I started thinking like, oh yeah, those types of people would never publish that kind of stuff online. They have to have this sparkling, clean, all business success kind of look to them for the whole thing to work. There's a secondary question, which is like, would you like maybe persist in like pursuing a bad strategy a little longer because you said you were going to do it on the podcast? I think absolutely no. I mean, we've talked about this before. That doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Here's the other thing that doesn't make it onto this podcast is that me and you are literally sitting arm to arm next to each other in a co-working space these days. And we're just talking about this business all day, essentially. We're making minor tweaks. You know, we've like ripped down the sales page like three times in the last month. We're about to rip it down again and change it. So like not everything makes it on the podcast. Without sitting next to us, you might not have the best perspective in terms of like, what's going on in the business. Does that make sense? Yeah. But they might have best perspective to know that we're headed nowhere fast. Sure. Maybe so. It's hard to see yourself. Sometimes other people can see it before you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep the emails coming. If you yeah. guys see something that we don't, you know, definitely appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually like the coolest part about doing things in public. Like, so There's two motivations that tend to fail. One is ego. And I think that's a lot of the reason that like people who present themselves as gurus online, like often it's like interesting to like poke around and figure out like what would motivate somebody to like want to be so right all the time. But the second thing is ego and money. If like those are your two, like you're just doing something for money or if you're just doing something for ego, it's a really good moment to like check yourself before you wreck yourself. It was cool to like have this question and this conversation because I felt the exact same way. And I think that's the, the listeners have got that sense too. Like, hey, man, if you're, if you're just doing this for your ego because you said you were going to, like, we're giving you an out. And I feel like, no, that's not why we're doing it. But I still think there's like potential here to be one of the biggest sites on the web for really quality remote jobs. That's why we're doing it. I think most people that start a new venture, like, it never looks good. <laughs> like it very rarely looks good to themselves and anybody else. But what I was trying to articulate, Dan, with the like the shoulder to shoulder thing and the uh, co-working space, how we've been working is uh, that we share a vision for this. You know, we could be wrong in the vision, but I think like only you and I really have this vision for it and our team members as well. And so we feel like passionate about having to execute on it until we reach some kind of failure point or success point. And I think as long as like the vision is there, that's the important part for the entrepreneur is like, trust your vision, definitely listen to everybody, what they're trying to tell you, try not to be delusional about your vision. But I don't feel like we have like a delusional idea about the future of work and how it's going to be remote. I don't know if we necessarily still know how to win that space. 
yeah. or how to even compete. But like the basic vision is more people tomorrow will be working remotely than they are today. And how can we start to facilitate those types of relationships? The execution of it, still not sure. That's why I've ripped the sales page down three times in the last month. Yeah. Hey, we got a voicemail. Absolutely love getting the voicemails. This one's from Karen. Hi, this is Karen Amundsen, founder and CEO of Apiary Digital, a location-independent digital marketing collective. I am listening to the Should You Go Remote episode while walking to my co-working space, and I stopped dead in my tracks when I heard you say the question about, you know, is it limiting to employees who want to be more aggressive in pursuing their career if they're remote? And my answer, my reaction to that is, oh my God, no, this is such a huge benefit because in the traditional workplace, people who have families, i.e. mostly working moms, you know, can't go out to happy hours and do kind of all the extracurricular things that you need to do to get ahead in the workplace. And when you're working remotely, you actually really kind of have to get ahead more by just doing good work. And I think it actually creates more of a meritocracy for getting ahead, I think that this is a key towards leveling the playing field and it's benefit to companies because they're not going to be leaving all this talent on the table just because, you know, people maybe need to go pick up their kids. So I'm really excited about this as a benefit to remote work. Definitely not at all in my eyes a drawback, but really thanks for bringing that up. And I've been listening to your show for years. I've never once called in, but I heard that and had to stop and say something. Hope you find it helpful. Thanks. Bye. Karen, thanks for... I love the image of Karen just like being like, wait, what What are they talking about? Picking up the phone and, and giving us a voicemail. That's so cool. Actually, producer Jane was quite eloquent in the comments section here of our production document. I wanted to read her comment. I hope she doesn't mind. If she does, She, I'm sure she can just cut this right the hell out of the pod. But here was what producer Jane had to say. She said, far from being a young people working on the beach from a laptop sort of situation. Location-independent working is liberating a far wider community, at-home parents, disabled, people who need to live in a certain place because of activities they love or need to look after relatives, etc. It is democratizing. This is something I really feel when I'm at DC or Dynamite Circle events. There's no judgment. We do bring out the weirdos. That's true. <laughs> we are weirdos. We are the weirdos. <laughs> what do you think of uh, Karen's comment? I think it's pretty accurate. And I feel that way too, is it does like uh, level the playing field a bit, you know, especially in America, like there's some pretty bad, awful politics going on. We talked about a little bit at the beginning of the show. I'll just say this about women that do high powered jobs in America. Like it's tough to be in that world. And I think like guys don't treat them fairly a lot of times. Like it's like if you rose to power as like a woman in an organization, I think like you get called all kinds of awful names that people would never call a man. Yeah. And so I can see why being in this situation that it's like the playing field is like leveled out, not just for women, but for everybody is a good thing. It's especially a great thing for people that are uh, really skilled living in disadvantaged countries too. I mean, yeah. all these places where the government's suppressing them, where there's not as many opportunities, like they get to earn a great living and do it online, grow generational wealth, change their families. I think it's an amazing opportunity. That's yeah, very cool. 
Karen's perspective is one that I didn't see until she called in. So we appreciate that. What another great thing about doing this show, boss man. I think we've gone through all the questions we're going to get through today. Let's end it with a little bit of rock and reviews. Thank you again for sending in your questions, for contacting us and the team. It's just awesome to, to see y'all interacting with the show like that. Now, as you guys know, we changed this from rap and reviews. That was what we were doing originally. I would pick out a rap song. We play the reviews. Everybody knows the story. And, and then it, it, the it fizzled out. the most important part of the show. It fizzled out a little bit. And then people said, hey, I wish you guys would bring this back. So we're bringing it back as rockin' reviews. But yeah. let me just tell you this, Dan. Mm-hmm. On the second week, I already see a problem. Yeah. Here's the problem, is that you are allowed to weigh in on the rock song. <laughs> <laughs> when it was just rap, I would just pick the song, we would roll it. Now yeah. we had a 20-minute conversation before the episode. Yeah, we, so, we both have deep concerns about each other's <laughs> rock music taste. Anyway, so when I said rockin' reviews was more sustainable, we're going to have to see about that. So here it is. We decided on this one together. This is Spoon. Spoon is an awesome band, Dan. An awesome band. They're from Austin, Texas. I think the cool thing about Spoon is that like this can be your summer jam. Like just go back through the catalogs. Right. Put it in on the car. They're on not your the bike. hot new thing. Like if no. you find yourself enjoying Spoon, you got a really good summer ahead of you. You got albums full of jams here. This is one of our favorite songs, Cherry Bomb. The review this week, something I'm incredibly proud of, Ian. A few weeks ago, Cal Newport, the Cal Newport, from the Study Hacks blog, a two-time guest here at the podcast, the author of So Good They Can't Ignore You, did a case study on something he's been calling the long-tail social media, and he used our private community, the Dynamite Circle, as the case study. So he went in there looked around, and talked about it. Essentially, the point of a long-tail social network is something that aims to create deep engagement through people. Because my point to him was like, dude, like the Dynamite Circle is like kind of hard to use. It's sort of like the opposite of Facebook. Like You have to shower before you meet people. You have to go in and like give critical feedback. You have to get on the phone with people. Like It's hard. Real relationships. It's real stuff, yeah. yeah. And that was sort of his point of these like long-tail networks. Is it's not just like this algorithm made by like scientists who are figuring out ways to like keep you clicking like and keep you clicking the picture and like getting mad at something and then buying something and all this stuff. Like the DC is different. It's about like, hmm, I want to be in a relevant mastermind with people that run businesses like myself. And I'm by the way, I'm like willing to like put it on my schedule to show up on time, to show up prepared, and to like give honest feedback. Anyway, you can go read it yourself over at the Cal Newport blog. We'll link see it up in this post but it's just so cool to see you know dynamite circle is sort of like one of these things that it's private thing people don't know what it is like what's actually happening in there and it's cool that an intellectual like cow come along and say like this is an example of 1200 people doing something that's really interesting no fake profiles no voter suppression it's all real (laughs) that's all we got for you this week thanks for joining us again we'll be back as always next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern standard time hey thanks for listening to the tropical mba podcast you can go to tropicalmba.com get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies load up your ipod that is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight we will see you next thursday morning 8 a.m eastern standard time